On May 4th, 2012, Marvel Studios uh, changed cinematic history when, uh, when they released the first Avengers movie, which was here called Avengers, in other countries, Avengers Assemble. Uh, it, it's, it's not the best movie ever, okay? It's not. it's not. It's not even the best comic book movie ever. It's not even the best Marvel movie ever made. Uh, but it did accomplish what no other movie had ever done up until its time. It, it took several movie, individual movie franchises uh, and, and joined them together into one giant team-up. Uh, Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, Thor, Captain America, and they were joined by... Black Widow and Hawkeye. It was a, if you're a fan of comic books, that was a, that was a dream come true. You know, six different uh, independent superheroes together on screen as one team, the Avengers. Uh, this movie sparked what all other studios even now try to imitate with its shared cinematic universe. And what strikes me about the, uh, about the plot behind this movie is its villain, Loki. Uh, in Norse mythology, Loki is the god of mischief, and this comic book version of him is intended to honor that, uh, that regard. Uh, Loki, in the movie and, and in Norse myso- uh, mythology, uh, Loki, is a, he's a liar, uh, he's a tempter, he's a thief, he's a murderer, and he's motivated to conquer and rule what doesn't rightfully belong to him. He masquerades as an angel of light, if you will. Uh, when really his heart is that of, a, of an adversary, of a devil, a Satan. His methods, however, is what likens him most to the prince of demons. Here's where I think that the, uh, that the coincidence is, uh, is startling. Uh, Loki has no intention, as a villain, he has no intention of physically confronting and combating Earth's mightiest heroes. He already knows that, uh, that that's a battle that he can't win. Uh, he, he knows there's only one of him, and he could never actually overpower the protagonists, right? They're too many, they're too powerful, uh, they're, they specialize in physical combat, and so uh, what, what could Loki ever do to them? So his plan in the movie isn't to, to confront them in, uh, in hand-to-hand combat or, or physical combat, not even with uh, necessarily weapons of warfare. That's not really his plan. His primary plan is to set them against themselves. That's his whole thing, uh, to make them think that they are their own enemies so that they fight each other and destroy each other. It makes for a, a less traditional uh, plot of good versus evil when you can orchestrate good versus good. Because the good was manipulated by the evil. Now, that right there is the quintessential strategy of an unseen enemy. Uh, it's, it's to turn people against themselves, let them defeat themselves. If you can do that, you don't have to get your hands dirty. If you can get your enemy to turn against themselves, then, then uh, you don't have to get into the fight. Loki embodied that motive, and it's, it's not even a new tactic at all. It's this age-old trick originated by an adversary from the very, very beginning. In our talk about spiritual warfare, we've been exploring the strategies that Satan has, uh, the adversary of God. What, what, what does he do? How does he try to, uh, to attack God's people, and how does he try to make us ineffective in carrying out God's will, in living uh, the way that God wants us to live? Now, we know that Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies, right? Uh, and so he uses deception to instill in us doubt, 
to do that to God's people, and uh, we know that the only remedy for that would be truth. We also know that Satan is a tempter who seduces people with desires of the flesh, uh, the world, the pride of life. And he uses temptation to motivate people to sin, and it breaks the righteousness that ought to be displayed by the followers of Jesus. And what we're going to talk about today is that Satan is a devil who uses conflict to divide believers, uh, to set them to fight against each other. That's his strategy. That's, that's the, the third strategy that we're going uh, to discuss. It's the cleanest way for him to render God's people ineffective and to excuse himself from the blame as we tear each other apart. Now, you have to think about it. How many of us, how many, if we were to just share all our stories, right? How many of us have been part of a church that had a hostile split? You know, where like the leadership was screaming at other leaders and, uh, and they couldn't stand it. They tried to fire the pastor or, or, or the pastor couldn't stand the elders or something like that. And, uh, and it was so bad that they just separated into two different groups. How many of us saw, uh, saw that kind of a confrontation happening at church? When, uh, at the church I was growing up at, two of the elders were, uh, were in, in such a, uh, a heated verbal combat that they started, to, uh, they started to engage one another physically, and people had to hold them back because they were trying to lash out each other in, in a fist fight. Now, all it takes is a moment like that. If you're, if you're visiting church, all it takes is a moment like that to make plenty of people walk away and say, what is this? The whole thing is a charade. It's a facade. Right? That's all it takes to make someone just turn away from the church, turn away from the gospel. What power could the gospel possibly have if even the leaders of the church can't seem to stand together and act together? Right? When, when pastors and Bible study teachers start trash-talking each other and judging one another or belittling church members, laughing at the, the people at their church and stuff, when, 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 you, when you start seeing that, when you get deep into the leadership and you start seeing that kind of an attitude... Uh, who would actually be convinced that faith is real? All it takes is for Christians to hate Christians and all our effectiveness in obeying Christ and testifying Christ and glorifying Christ is gone. That's the strategy of the enemy and that's what we're going to be talking about today. If you're taking notes, we're going to go in three movements, okay? First is that Satan is a devil. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. Satan is a devil. Second, we're going to talk about how that affects us how this affects us. And then third, we're going to talk about how we stand against the devil, right? Satan is a devil, how it affects us, and then how we can stand against the devil. All right, let's start with the first point. Satan is a devil, okay? One of the strategies that Satan uses against God's people is to turn us against one another, as we're talking about. This is what actually defines him as a devil, the word devil. Devil is a word that we think of most likely kind of like a species. We think of devil as the species that Satan is. You know, he's red-skinned or horned or tailed or pitchfork-holding, mustached man-creature with goat legs. There are lots of fun little cartoon depictions of him, none of which actually come from the Bible. None of that is, 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 uh, is used to describe him biblically, but, uh, but that's our cartoon version. And we think that devil is like this, his species. It's, it's his, the creature type that he is. But that's not really true. The word devil, diabolos, uh, from the Greek, means, it means adversary. Right? It, means, it means enemy. It means adversary. Specifically, it, it's a type of adversary. Uh, it, it usually means a slanderer. A slanderer. Someone who just speaks 
evil or speaks harm against another person. Someone who wants to say things to tear another person down. That's the kind of word that devil means. It's a slanderer. It's, uh, it's an enemy, usually in how you speak. It's rarely used in, uh, in terms of like physical combat. I think the, the exception to that might be Numbers 22.22, where the angel of the Lord stands off as an adversary against Balaam, the mad prophet. So you, you kind of have like ex- exceptional moments where it might be more of like a combatant. But in almost, every, in almost every case where it talks about Diabolos, in the New Testament, it's a slanderer. Right? The, only, the, the, the exception I named to you from uh, Numbers 22 is really not even from the, the original Hebrew. That's a Septuagint. The Greek, you don't care. Okay. The word diabolos is not to describe the, the species of Satan, right? People can be slanderers too. People can be, in that sense, people can also be a diabolos. People can be a devil or a slanderer in the same sense. Uh, the term gets used of people sometimes even in the New Testament. In, uh, in 1 Timothy 3.11 or in Titus 2 verse 3, uh, there, are, there are exhortations like make sure wives, you are not slanderers. Older women, make sure you're not slanderers and don't train younger women to be slanderers. That's what it says. In Titus 2.3, it says that the church is eventually, as it matures, it's going to have people rising up who are going to be lovers of all sorts of terrible things and they will be slanderous. And so we'll just talk about slant. people can be slanders, they can be devils, they can, they can be diabolos. So it's not a species, it's, it's a description of a person that is slandering, speaking harm, trying to tear someone down with, uh, with, with gossip, with, with hurtful speech, with uh, speech that would incite others against someone. Right? A, a, a slanderer is, um, is someone who's going to focus on the guilt and unworthiness of the, of the person that he's talking about. So people can be slanderers, but, uh, but when we talk about the, the term devil, we don't usually use it for people, right? It, it, the, the title feels like it belongs to Satan. That, uh, that, you know, that sure, anyone can be a devil, anyone can be a slanderer, but the, the term devil feels like it, it's really Satan's own exclusive little word there. Because he's the first slanderer, he's, he slandered God's character starting in Genesis 3, right? He was the one that was, uh, he was talking to Eve, and uh, he's saying, you know, the reason why God told you not to eat of the forbidden fruit is because he doesn't want you to be like him. If you eat it, you're not going to die. He, he was lying to you. If you eat this fruit, you'll, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be wise, and you'll know what good and evil are, just like he does. And, you know, he was using that to demean God's character, to, make so, to, to incite someone against God. He was a slanderer in that sense. Satan is called a, a slanderer, or a, an adversary, or a devil. He's called Diabolos uh, many, many times throughout the Bible. It's, it's a common, popular title for him. I think that that's m- maybe the one that most people know. Uh, a lot of people don't even know that, that a lot of people know that there's something like a devil. Not everyone knows his name is Satan. Let me show you just a, a list of uh, references. If you just look at the, the, the chapters that I've listed here, this is where uh, the word devil pops up, diabolos, right? It's in Matthew 4, Luke 4, John 8 and 13, Acts 10 and 13, Ephesians 4 and 6, 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 2 and 3, Hebrews 2, James 4, 1 Peter 5, 1 John 3, Jude 9, Revelation 2, 12 and 20. And in many of those chapters, uh, the word diabolos comes up many times. And these are all the times that... Uh, Diabolos is referring to Satan himself. He is 
a devil. He is the devil. Right? When it talks about, uh, when it talks about Satan, it, sometimes it just doesn't use his name. The Bible would just say the devil. Because this title feels like it, it, it belongs to him, specifically him, because ultimately he is the adversary of God, right? He's the enemy of God. He's an adversary to God. He's an adversary to God's people. He speaks against God. He speaks against God's people. He speaks against all of us. And you, you, you have to understand the, the, uh, the use of his slander, okay? Slander is not just, uh, it's not just using insults, right? He can say true things, he can say true things about someone in order to recruit people to hate that person. Right? It doesn't have to be false uh, information. It can be true information to, to sit there and try to highlight the guilt and the unworthiness and to recruit people against that person, to incite others against the person you're speaking about. So the slander he uses can be true statements. It highlights blame uh, and... Uh, and kind of the shared word with that that we'll focus on uh, a little bit more next week, but uh, one of the, the shared words that, uh, that goes with that, with slandering against people, is accusing people. It's, it's almost, it's very related, okay? Uh, uh, if you've got your Bibles in Revelation, take a look at this passage, and then after that, everything else will be up on the board. But Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and we've been in Revelation 12 a lot throughout this series because it's kind of our platform uh, passage. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the Diabolos, the devil, and Satan. Right? So we're talking about Satan. He's pictured as a dragon. He's thrown down. He's thrown out of heaven. Thrown out of heaven. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the one who accuses them day and night before our God. Verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So up until that point, all the way up until the point of the crucifixion, Satan has been accusing God's people to God. He's been going up to God and, and, and saying, how can, you, how can you love these people? How can you trust these people? Etc. He's been doing that. And you get a good look at that in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. We'll, we'll take a look at that next week. But you get a good look at that. You get to see Satan accusing God's people and trying to turn God away from, from his people and trying to turn God's people away from God. That's what, that's what he does. Verse, uh, verse 11 again. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, so it's by the crucifixion that, uh, that his slander and his accusations are defeated. Verse 12, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the diabolos, the devil, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So what it's saying here is that the slanderer is no longer in heaven slandering God's people and accusing God's people to the Lord. He's now thrown down out of heaven and he's on the earth. He's among us, which is why the New Testament says, watch out for, for, you know, the, for Satan. He prowls around like a roaring lion. Watch out for him. Keep watch so you don't fall into temptation. There's all this, this talk about how the devil is among us. Satan is not uh, is not hiding in some other universe. He's, he's here among us. And that's what we need to watch out for. And it says, Woe to you, O earth and sea, because the, the slanderer is now on the earth 
roaming the earth. And that's what Satan does. He, he, he accuses God's people. He focuses them on their guilt and their unworthiness. Now, here's the thing, right? Uh, he, can, he can talk about someone's guilt and unworthiness. Now, previously in the Old Testament, like in the book of Job, he does that to God. He goes up to God and says, don't trust this guy, Job. He's not as great as you think. And he'll accuse someone or he'll slander someone to the Lord. But he can't do that anymore. He's been thrown down out of heaven by the blood of the Lamb. Where is he now? He's here on earth. So if he's, gonna, he's still a slanderer, he's still a devil. And if he's going to slander someone, who's he going to talk to? Right? He's going to say hurtful things about someone or he's going to say vilifying things against someone. To whom is he saying this? He'll say it to you. He'll say it to the church. And then Christian will turn against Christian. That's what he's going to do. That's, that's kind of the overview of what we're talking about here, that Satan is a devil, he's a slanderer, and he's not talking to God anymore, he's talking to you. It's either him or one of his demons going, you know, under his authority, under his leadership. But they come and they talk to Christians to turn Christians against Christians, right? To make you think about someone else's blames, uh, someone else's guilt, someone else's uh, shortcoming and unworthiness, to be a fault finder, to, uh, to be someone who, who has to sling judgment, this is what Satan does. And that's how he would do it. He would, he, would, he would talk to us to turn us against one another like Loki would turn the Avengers against one another. That's, what, that, that's how you defeat Earth's mightiest heroes. He can't take us on one-on-one. If we resist him, he'll flee from us. That's, that's a promise that we'll, we'll find out later today. But if he can turn us against each other, If he could take one Christian and turn him against another Christian, he's just taken out two Christians. How does this affect us? Right? He's gonna he's gonna try to get us to uh, to to focus on our unworthiness and our guilt, maybe not our own, but someone else's. Right? He he makes you think of someone else's sin, makes you think of someone else and how bad they are, how terrible of a person they are, makes you think of how you would never be like this person. It makes you judge another person, makes you, makes you harbor these, these uh, hateful feelings towards someone. Angry, annoyed, bitter, jealous, whatever. But to get this in, into your mind, he puts this in your mind so that you look at another Christian, you look at your brother or your sister, and you think that this person is your enemy. Which is why Paul has to tell us in Ephesians 6, our, look, our, our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's these spiritual forces of darkness. It's, it's these demons that are coming in and trying to get you to think like that. Well, how does this affect us today, right? If he accuses us to God, um, if he were to go up to God today and say like, oh, well, this guy, he's a sinner, the God would just say, well, he's forgiven, right? God would do that because God looks at, at us and he, he sees us as justified. He knows that we, we, we sin. He knows that and he knows that it's paid for. But we, as we look at one another, we don't always see it that way, right? Christian looks at Christian, and sure, theologically we know, oh, that person's sins are forgiven. All of it's been paid for. But when that, that Christian sins against you, how, how quick are you to forgive? Right? How fast are you to be like, ah, you know, it's, it's covered by the blood of Christ? How, how, how fast are we to do that? Let's talk about how this affects us, okay? Satan is thrown down out of heaven. He's accusing us uh, against one another, right? Talking to you in your head about someone else. 
making you focus on their sin, on their guilt, on their unworthiness. That's what he's doing, right? And you have to know this. It's, it's natural. It's over, even if Satan didn't exist, it's natural for us to get annoyed with each other and to get mad and to get jealous and be mean and to hold grudges and all that kind of stuff. We naturally can just run into problems with one another. I think you'd agree. Satan knows this about us. And so he just decides he's going to spam that button and just keep hitting that. Keep, keep by pinching on that nerve, you know, to, to get us to, to, to think like that. And that's all that's in our brains. That's all that we're, uh, we're focusing on. You're trying to just get on with your day, but you're just, you're still caught up with how, how mad you are at someone, right? He can't, he can't go to God and, and do this anymore. So he, he has to do it among us. If we're naturally like this, if we're naturally inclined already to, to be in conflict with one another, it makes us easy targets for demons who are unseen to come in and, and provoke us to anger and all that kind of stuff. Now, think about what Jesus said, okay? In John 13, think about what Jesus said. We'll put it up on the board. Verse 34, Jesus tells his, his disciples, and pertaining to all believers, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Right? That's his command. uh, What does Jesus say we, we need to do? We need to love one another. What happens when we do it? It says all people will know that we're disciples of Christ. That's how they'll know. That's how they'll know it's the real deal. If we love one another, if we stand together in unity and peace and solidarity and humility and meekness, if we serve one another with joy and with sacrifice and forgive one another, when, when they see that happening, when we love one another, then people walk in and say, there's something incredible here. But when we come to church and we start hating one another, and we have bitterness and jealousy and rivalries and all that kind of stuff, they say, this isn't any different than the rest of the world. They're just better at faking it most of the time. Isn't that, uh, isn't that kind of the, the heart that, that, that convinces people of the gospel? It's, it's not how, how well the theological information all works out. It's not that. It's never that. It's always been about whether or not they see the love of God in the people of God. It's, it's always come down to that. Someone reaches out to them and, and demonstrates to them a sacrificial love. That's how people come to realize their own sinfulness, and that's how people come to realize the grace of God. It's not like they just worked out some theological rubric and said, oh, that, that makes great sense, and so I'm a believer. It's never been that. Isn't that how many of you ended up here? Right? Is it not because of the love of God that you ended up at this church? Right? A few of you might claim it's the three-hour-long sermons, maybe, but that's not it, is it? You came because, it, it, sure, to know the Savior, but also to be the community. You came here and you said, like, the people here are really nice, and like, they, I feel like they actually believe the things that they're talking about and stuff, and so I feel like the doctrine is you know, it's, it's right in front of me. I can, I can see it clearly, and I feel like the people of God actually submit to the Lord. Anyway, Jesus tells us to love each other. That's how the world will see what it means to belong to Christ. That's that's what's going to evangelize, right? It's when we love one another. 
Not just with, uh, with extravagant morality and, 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 and wonderful softness and you know, sentimentality. It's got to be informed by, by clear doctrine and stuff. But it's our love that's going to evangelize the world. That's what it's going to do it. And, and that's not the only passage that says this, okay? The New Testament especially emphasizes our call to love and our call to, uh, to stand together in humility and unity and peace and like-mindedness based on the Bible, Based on the apostles, it, it, it says, like, this is, this is how you make it work. You, you love one another and have peace with one another and are humble toward one another and uh, are like, uh, have unity with one another and are like-minded on the Word of God. You have the same regard for the Word of God. You're in absolute submission to it as, as the absolute divine authority. That's what's going to make everything work. That's, that's how he's going to do it. I'm going to prove it to you, and I'm going to read verses that we're putting up on the board and I want you to know, there are a lot of them. Like a lot, okay? So I'm going to read some. Then you're going to think I'm done. I'm not done. There's going to be a lot, okay? Because I want to hammer this into our minds that uh, the idea of loving one another is synonymous with being humble and being unified and having peace and, uh, and being like-minded on the Scriptures. All of that is used synonymously in the Bible, Okay? Tons of passages on this. Let's start with what Jesus says in, in uh, John 17, verse 17. He's talking about his, uh, he's praying for his 12 disciples, and he's like, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's what Jesus prays to God. Please sanctify the 12 disciples in the truth. Your word, God's word, is truth. Sanctify them with that, okay? Then you, if you jump to verse 20, it says, I don't ask for these only, I'm not just asking for the 12, the 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me, meaning all the Christians that will come later, right? So I'm not just asking to sanctify the 12 disciples with the word, but also to sanctify all Christians with the word through their word, the, the teaching of the apostles that, you know, Jesus uh, taught the apostles, the apostles wrote it down, that's the word of God, that's the apostles teaching that's how we're sanctified, through their word, the apostles' word, uh, written word, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, it says uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Right? Their love for one another, the sanctification in the word of God is what makes them one. That's what makes them unified, and that's what evangelizes that's so that the world may believe. Romans 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Right? Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. There's a humility to that, and there's a unity to that that's being talked about. 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's not this agree-to-disagree nonsense. It's not this whole, well, that's your opinion, this is my opinion. It's not that. It's, this is the Word of God. We stand together in solidarity on that. That's what makes us one. I appeal to you, brothers, in, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. How do you have no divisions? By standing together on the word. You'd be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
right? And it's weird. That's countercultural because we, we love individuality. We love having our own opinions and things. And we're not talking about opinions on fashion. We're not talking about opinions on food and stuff like that. We're talking about opinions on what, uh, what God is saying in his word. What, what's he saying is the main thing? What is that? 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Just as one, uh, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Right? Body's made up of many parts, but it's one body. Same with the church, the body of Christ. We're all different members, but we all make up one body. There's got to be a oneness to us. Ephesians 4, uh, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's a oneness to this, an urge for love and humility and unity. Ephesians 4.11. And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's a, a word for, for what the devil throws at you as a deceiver. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Where does that come from? That comes from our understanding of God's word. That's the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Listen to the unity and the peace and the, the solidarity, the like-mindedness, the, 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 uh, the one, one idea, the one mind through Scripture. To know that God has spoken and that is absolute truth. Colossians 3.12 Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, uh, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, uh, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you, indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Look at the, that call to unity. Look how it's synonymous with love. Look how it, it, it all, it, you can't have one without the other. Love for one another, unity, peace, standing together as a people of God without division, not fighting against each other, not separating, not dividing, not breaking fellowship, no bitterness, no anger. Instead, it's saying meekness and forgiving each other, no complaining or anything like that, just working it out in love so that there's harmony. Philippians 2.2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Right? That call to love, that call to unity, that call to, to abandon your selfish ambition and to prioritize other people. 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. It's all synonymous. 
Second, if we just jump over to the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 30, verse 12, it says the hand of God was also on Judah, the southern kingdom of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Israelites. Uh, the hand of God was also on Judah to, to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Right? Oneness in heart. Where did that come from? The word of the Lord. To carry out the word of the Lord. People complain that I don't reference the Psalms enough, so he threw a Psalm in there for free, right? <laughs> Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Brothers being brothers and sisters. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. The emphasis God gives his people in uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, throughout the, the Scriptures, this is just a, a small list of the huge amount of selections that we could take of where God calls His people to love and humility and unity and peace and like-mindedness based on His Word. So if Satan hates, uh, if Satan hates God, and if Satan hates God's people... How will they stop us from effectively living the way we're supposed to? What Jesus and, and the apostles are saying here is when we live together in unity and in love, when we, when we stand together in peace and solidarity, like-minded on Scripture, when we stand together like that, that's when we're effective. That's what evangelizes. That's what glorifies the Lord. So if Satan hates God and Satan hates us, what's he going to do? He's going to try to divide us. To break our unity, break our solidarity, break our peace. That's what the adversary will do. That's what makes him a devil. He'll deceive us to cause us to doubt God and God's word. He'll tempt us to love ungodly things so that we fall into sin. And he'll prompt, uh, he'll prompt us with slander in order to incite conflict so that there's division among us. Because when there's conflict, when we don't like another person, we, we separate, we divide. And the church has that group over there and that group over there and that group over there and they don't want to talk to each other. And then they all come in here and they sing about the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the unity of the church and all that stuff. And then they go back outside and they don't want to talk to each other. I'll say it again. It's the work of the devil to create conflict within God's people. And he uses conflict to make us divide. We're called to love one another. We're called to humility. We're called to unity and peace and like-mindedness on the scriptures, yes? Then what will Satan sow among us? Jealousy, selfish ambition, false faith that pretends to be true. This is a demon strategy. This is what he does. I'll, I'll show it to you in James 3, verse 13. James 3, verse 13. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and what's the last word there? Demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Have you, have you considered that the judgmental, hateful, hurtful, unloving thoughts you have toward another believer are demonic? 
Have you ever thought about that? Like you think, I just hate this person. I, I don't like this person. I'm annoyed at this person. I'm, I'm irritated at this person. I'm frustrated with this person. And you think, oh, it's because this person is the problem. But have you ever thought that maybe you're just serving a devil? You ever thought that you're just, you're a puppet to a demon who's speaking through you and you're just going along with it? Has it ever occurred to you that maybe instead of being the vessel of God, you're the vessel of the devil, the vessel of Satan? When the thoughts in your head, when the words that come out of your mouth are spoken against someone who belongs to Jesus, someone who's forgiven of their sins, someone that that God says is his child, when you start to speak against someone like that, the words that you say, when you start saying, I hate this person, I don't like, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, you know, when you start saying things to incite other people against this person, when you do that, is that the Holy Spirit speaking through you? Nope. So then, it would be a thought that's either coming from your flesh, or the world, or the devil. And usually it's coming from all three. How effective as a follower of Jesus are you when you hate one of his people? And it has layers. It has layers, right? It's, it's, it's one thing to have a conflict or hatred with someone at church. That's kind of where we've been talking about it right now, right? We're just talking about hating someone at church, right? Okay, that's awful. But not everyone has that. A lot of us, honestly, here at this church, we all kind of seem to get along. Nobody bites. Everybody seems to be nice, right? It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of hatred going on here at this church, but there are layers to this. Go, go, go deeper a layer, okay? Where it's not just on Sunday where you see one another, but uh, if you go deeper a layer, think about how you interact with, uh, with let's take several layers. Layer number one, how do you interact with your significant other? Right? Let's talk about this. Believers who have conflict or hatred with their significant other, you're dating someone, you're married to someone, and just the the bitterness, the unhealthy relationship that, that arises, the, the constant fighting, the constant name-calling, threatening, the harming that can come out, right? The, the fighting is so frequent or intense that you just can't serve the Lord. Do you ever notice, like, people can have a fight with, you know, with someone at school or something like that, and then they come to church and they're fine because it's, like, very compartmentalized, right? That person at school is not here. That person at work is not here. And so they come to church and they're fine. They just kind of serve. But when you have a fight with your significant other and you go to the same church, that's a whole different ballpark. Because now this person that you just fought with, you know, driving in the car and you're like screaming at each other, you get to church. How do you come and serve? Right? There's this thing inside you that goes, now what am I going to do? You know, because obviously I, I look like a hypocrite in front of this person and this person could tell everyone what we just fought about and stuff, and then I look stupid. And so there's like this way that like you're in this relationship, you get into a fight, and now it renders you ineffective. You don't even, you don't even feel like you can serve at church. You, look, everyone who's a couple, you've, you will experience that if you have not already, but you will. And it's bad. I mean, I, I'll just be honest with you. I'm a pastor, right? I got to come up here and preach every Sunday. So I got to make sure on Saturday night I don't fight with my wife. I got to make sure. I got to time that thing for like Monday, Why did I say that? All right. <laughs> but think about this. You know, like, uh, you're, the conflict you have with your significant other, that's, that's someone that your heart is supposed to be in stride with. Look at what the scriptures say about this, right? In 1 Peter 3, okay? Talking to wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, even if your husband doesn't obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. Try that as a strategy. 
Win your husband over without saying stuff. Try it. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, right? That's how they'll be won over. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, try resorting to respectful and pure conduct to resolve something. Verse 3, don't let your adorning be external, like the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Like, don't don't use that to try to make yourself feel valuable and beautiful. Verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Try that. Gentility and quietness. Try it. Just see if you trust God's word in this or if you think he's wrong. How crazy it is that God tells wives to be respectful and pure to win your husband over without words, particularly without words that are going to tear him down. Make him feel like he doesn't have your support. He just has your scorn. Look what it says to husbands. Verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. How crazy it is that God tells husbands to be understanding, showing honor. Now, you, you understand what society this was being, uh, being written in, right? It was, a, it was an extremely man-oriented society. Women had no rights. And here he's saying, treat them as honor, like a weaker vessel, like a more fragile and precious work of art, right? Treat them as something precious. Show honor to them. When husbands are so good instead at showing rage or despair, we use the extreme emotions and we think that that's somehow going to get our wife off our back. Instead of protecting her as if she's weaker or or fragile or more precious. That last exhortation in in, uh, in verse 7, though, is, is interesting. Why do you need to live in unity in your marriage? Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. How honest that is. You ever tried to pray right after a fight with your wife? Or with your husband? You ever tried to pray right after a fight with anyone? Right? Scream at your parents and then sit down and be like, Lord, thank you for today. You have made the heavens and the earth and you are the redeemer of all things and you make all things. Try that. It screws you up. You sit there and, you know, the Holy Spirit is, is with you, right? And so he's like, hey, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. What about that thing? What about that fight you just had with your parents? And there you are, you want, you want to pray. And so what do we resort to? Usually we just stop praying. We don't, we don't instead just confess and, you know, and come to God and come clean and say, like, I don't know why I'm acting like this. I don't know why I'm speaking the words of the devil. Instead we just, we're like, ah, I, I, I can't pray. God's not going to listen anyway. What good are your prayers? when you're trying to ask God for something. Not, I mean, you can always confess and you can always ask for forgiveness and that kind of thing. That's different. But when you're asking God to give you stuff or to, or to help you or to, you know, what good are your prayers when you're unwilling to trust him and obey him in your most sacred covenant vow? Not everyone is married. Not everyone's dating. So there are other layers, right? 
maybe even for those who are married or dating, maybe your relationship is fine, but try, try a deeper layer. Try family. Everyone has a family. How many of us have damaged relationships with our parents? Bitterness, distance, instead of love and honor, right? We come to church, we do great things at church, but then when it comes to our parents, we have these, these really odd feelings where we are blatantly disobedient to God, and we think it's okay because it's not happening at church. It's just, that's my parents, and my parents are ridiculous. You think those things don't manifest in your faith? You think they don't somehow do something to your effectiveness for the Lord or somehow damage your ability to glorify Him? Your relationship with your, your parents, your siblings, your aunts, uncles, your cousins, even your roommates, that's like fake family members, but we'll, we'll count them in because they get to see how you live, right? They get to like be there with you and it's like simulated family members, okay? Even your roommates, like... Where, what are their thoughts on you? People who see how you live at home, with family, with people that you have no real mask to cover yourself with, right? That's a distinct test of character. What, what would those members say if you asked them whether or not you should be a church leader? What would those people say? Would they roll their eyes? Would they, would they start gagging? Right? Or would they say like, yeah, you definitely should. Would they stand by you and say, absolutely, I know Jesus better and I love Jesus better because of the way that you are and the way you treat me and the way that I see you with everyone. What they, what they know about you, what they see in you, what they have against you. What would they think? Right? If you, if you became a church leader, would that member be like, that church is a healthy church or would they think that church is broken? And you have enough people thinking that and you just, they end up thinking faith is broken. The gospel is broken. Jesus is broken. You see it, right? How many people leave the church because they hate someone there? Right? They had a bad breakup, something like that, and so they just leave church. Or they feel like they've been wronged, so they leave church. They, they see hypocrisy in the leadership or in the congregation, they leave the church. They feel like there's too many cliques and stuff, so they leave church. And they, they use that as their reason, their excuse to abandon God. How many people get divorced because the fighting is so bad that they don't even care about their covenant to God anymore? They think divorce is a solution instead of a violation. And they resort to it. They weaponize it in their words to one another. How many people go to church and serve and fellowship and yet hate or are hated by members of their own family? It can be any kind of relationship. You can hate your boss at work. You can treat someone at school like garbage. All it really takes is one person. All it really takes is just one person that you hate or that you mistreat or that you refuse to love. And the devil will see that in you and will keep pushing that button. And keep pinching that nerve and twisting that knife. If that's where you're weak, that's where you fall, that's where your witness and testimony are compromised, someone will see it and decide they can't believe in Christ because they can't even believe in Christians. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 25, he says, uh, as you did to the least of these, you did to me. 
It's in this parable that he's talking about and stuff. But his point is that the person you treat the worst in your life, that is the measure of how you love and serve and treat Jesus. It's not measured by the person you treat the best. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says even unbelievers are good to people who are good to them. It's the people that can't help you and the people that are bad to you. What you you do to them, what you do to the least of these, that is how you treat Jesus. I mean, how does this all, all happen, right? How do we end up fighting each other like this? How does the devil get us to do that? What, what method does he use in affecting us this way? It's easy. He has you focus on guilt. Right? That's what slander is. Focus, getting someone to focus on their guilt and wrong, wrongdoing and unworthiness and all that kind of stuff, right? That's what he has you focus on. He's, he's a slanderer, right? He keeps pointing people at crimes and evokes your outrage. How could he do that? Why does she act like that? I hate when he does that. She always gets this wrong. And he turns that into something in you. That's how a slanderer works. That's how a slanderer accuses. Right? He, takes, he, he, he brings your attention on someone else and makes you look directly at their sin, at their shortcoming, at the wrongdoing. That's what a devil does. He slanders someone else, and he tells it all to you. And then he'll slander you to someone else. Our natural dis- disposition already, we, we are by nature fault finders. We, we, we have to say whose fault it is. We have to blame them. We have to say who's guilty, like who did this, who's responsible for this. That's the thing we always ask. Inst- every single one of us instinctively wants to do that, right? Whose fault is it then? Did you do this? Are you saying I did it? Are you saying it's my? That's what we do. And the devil uses that against us. He takes that unhealthy, unholy tendency and keeps prompting us to look for fault and to place blame and to focus on guilt. That's what he does. He, he's not in heaven uh, talking to God to try to do that you know, with God anymore. He's on the earth and that's how he's talking to us. He focuses us on someone else's sins and crimes and has us dwell on those thoughts. And the thing is, the Bible doesn't even do that. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible is the most candid about the sinfulness of mankind, and the Bible doesn't even sit there and try to have Christians dwell on their sin. It doesn't. The, the Bible, what, what does the Bible do, right? What does the Bible do when it comes to the issue of our sin? A believer's sin, a Christian's sin. It, it just... It, it, it talks about your sin. Does it just go, oh, but don't worry, you're forgiven, and then just ignore it? No, it doesn't do that either, okay? Uh, the Bible doesn't dwell on the sin to keep punishing us over and over and over again and us making us feel like crap. That's not what the Bible does, right? Christ died for your sins on the cross, paid the full price. So the, the Bible is absolutely clear about your sin, the magnitude of it, the price that had to be paid for it. God himself had to take on flesh and, and, and died to pay for it. That's what happened. And then it says you are completely forgiven of your sins. You can pray to God whenever you sin because you feel like your relationship, with, your intimacy with him has been broken, uh, even though your, your status with him is secure. But you can always pray to, to be forgiven and restore that intimacy. You can always come before him and, and, and confess your sins. He'll purify you from all unrighteousness and, and all that kind of stuff. You can always do that. You can focus 
focus on that. You can do that. And then the Bible moves you in to think about where to go from here. It doesn't have you thinking about your old self and what you did. It says, okay, let's put on the new self. What do we do now? Right? It doesn't say, look at what you've done. It says, okay, how, what, do, what should we do? And it always moves you in a different direction. It'll, it'll, it'll push you forward, not chain you to the past. It always points you forward. James 4, if you look up on the board, James 4, verses, uh, let's go 1 to 3. Uh, it says, uh, what, quarrels, uh, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. This is not really murder, by the way. People at church weren't just murdering each other because they got... This is a... You know, it's, it's a... You know, euphemism is like where you say a nicer word than it really is, right? This is a dysphemism. It's a, a harsher word than, than it really is, okay? It's the opposite of euphemism, right? And he's, he's, he's using a, a little thing that Jesus did in... Uh, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer, you know, you're guilty of murder. It's the same, he's kind of equating the two in the heart, right? And so, he, so James is saying, uh, you desire you don't have, and so you hate one another, right? You have this anger, this hateful anger toward one another. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you see the exegetical progression there, right? He's saying the same thing. You desire and don't have, you covet and cannot obtain, so you have murder or hateful anger, so you fight and quarrel, right? This is the, that's the, the equating of those two ideas. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask. Uh, you ask and you do not receive because you, have, you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, which is a word that already came up in verse 1. Look at verse 6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the diabolos, resist the slanderer, and he will flee from you. So in this whole talk about quarrels and fights, divisions happening among God's people, he's saying this happens from your own passions, okay? There's a, an aspect of the flesh that takes place here. In your own passions, your own hedone, which is where we get the word hedonism, your desire for pleasure, that's why you fight with one another, it's not because someone sinned. It's not because they did something wrong. It's because it makes you unhappy. You don't like that. That's where a bunch of fights at church happen. It's not because someone is in sin. It's because you just don't like the way that they do this thing. I don't like the way they talk. I don't like the way that they move. I don't like the way that they serve. I don't like the way that they put things away. I don't like the way that they make noise. I don't like the way... I don't like the... Whatever. Fill it in. That's why we get into stupid fights with one another. And it's not based on, it's not based on, on, on holiness and, and sinfulness. It's not based on that. It's based on your hedone, your, your hedonism, your passions, your desire for pleasure. That's, that's where so many of our fights really come from, isn't it? And what's crazy is that James, in telling us to, to watch out for this kind of stuff, he says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, because why would the, the diabolos, the slanderer, be, be uh, mentioned here? Because that's what he uses against you. He knows your hedone. He knows your passions. He knows your, your desire for pleasure. And when someone violates that, he comes in and pushes that button, pinches that nerve, twists that knife. 
And so James says, look, you've got these passions that are going to trigger when people just make you unhappy and you're going to want to turn that into a fight. Watch out. Resist the devil. He will use that against you. We get upset at things that are not sin. We get upset at things that violate our preferences. The moment you're fighting or quarreling with someone, if you just notice in the passage here, the moment you're fighting or quarreling with someone, do you notice that both parties are guilty? It's never, oh, you fight and quarrel because one of you was being stupid. But that's what we think, right? That's how we defend ourselves. Why are you guys fighting? Well, because he was being stupid. When you're fighting, immediately, the fact that the two of you are fighting means that you too are guilty. And you could sit there and try to sift out who's more guilty. Who cares? Who cares? You're both outside the will of God. Why measure the distance? The moment you're fighting with someone, quarreling with someone, who's at fault? You are, both of you. It doesn't matter which one. It doesn't matter who more. And the Bible doesn't seem to focus on the blame. It's just, if, you're, if you're fighting, you guys, you're, you're outside the will of God. You need to resist the devil. Submit yourselves to God, both of you. Submit yourselves, not yourself. But submit yourselves. It explains what's going on. immediately focuses on what you need to do. It says, look, you're fighting. You need to submit yourselves to God. You need to resist the devil. It doesn't have you focus on the, on the past and the, the crimes and try to sift out who's more to blame. It says, look, come back and, and follow after God and stand against the devil. As much as uh, the sinful desires are in you, the devil will agitate those, provoke those. That's what he uses, right? That's how he affects us. He has us focus on the guilt and the unworthiness, the shortcomings, the wrongdoings of someone else, especially the stuff that goes against our preferences, our, our head and a, our passions, our, our desires for pleasure, the things that make us happy. So then how do we stand against it? How do we stand against the devil? Uh, the solution's easy to explain and difficult to apply, right? We'll just, we'll just punch out four little things you can do. First, just like the Bible, focus on overcoming the issue, not, not dwelling on the guilt. Right? Your desire should be on overcoming the issue, outgrowing this, beating this, and, and not, not perpetuating in it. Right? Your focus should not be on dwelling on the guilt and finding out whose fault it is and making them feel bad. It's not that. God doesn't try to punish believers for their sin. He already punished our sin on the cross, on Jesus. Praise God for that. So that's it. That's the price that's paid. He doesn't try to punish believers for their sin. He instead disciples them, right? He'll discipline to teach us to do, to do right and stuff, but he disciples them. He teaches us the value of obedience. He tries to, to show us through his word and through his people what, what we ought to do. He trains us. Look at Galatians 6, right? Galatians 6 verse 1. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in, tra- in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Right? When you see someone in sin, don't focus on the guilt he's done. Focus on the godliness he needs to learn from you. Right? How, how many of the fights that we have would be prevented if there was just less verbal punishment and more loving encouragement? What would happen if we didn't use words to hurt one another 
and to, and to, to, to get at one another for the violation we feel? What would happen? Look, it, it takes time for, uh, you know, for this to, to really work, you know? Because it takes time for someone to learn to break old habits and to, uh, and to discover the worth of new values, gospel values, biblical values. It takes time for someone to go from there to there, from the old self to the new self. That sanctifying process is a lifetime of work, right? You can't just be like, why isn't he perfect? I'm so frustrated. He's not perfect the way that I am, right? You understand the gospel sounds like foolishness to an unbeliever. It sounds like foolishness to our natural instincts, Right? God's values feel counterintuitive. Things like humility and transparency, purity, compassion, sacrificial forgiveness, joyful service to undeserving people, these aren't natural. We don't love serving a boss that's mean to us. We don't love forgiving someone who just hurt us. We don't love being completely honest about how we screwed up. They are opposite to our hedonistic desires for pleasure, our selfish ambition. And they take time to undo and replace. You have to be patient. You've got to restore them gently. All of you, where, where are you now compared to five years ago in your faith? Where are you now? I, 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 would, I would think and I would hope that most of you would say that you've grown in the past five years. There's a difference where you are now than where you were five years ago. That, that's what I hope you'd say, Right? Well, why weren't you perfect back then? Don't you wish someone just came at you five years ago and started screaming at you and t- making you feel stupid for not having your act together? Of course not. Aren't you glad the Lord is patient and that the church disciples you? Doesn't just throw a book at you and say, you've got till tomorrow to have everything figured out. No more verbal punishment. No more focusing on the guilt and trying to hurt someone for it. Devote yourself to helping this person overcome the issue. That's the goal. You've got to show them how to do it. You've got to help them with it. You've got to help them many times. Right? Someone who's trying to break a habit, alcohol, smoking, whatever, everyone's breaking it. It just doesn't happen overnight, not for everyone. You've got to help them with it. And there'll be times with relapse, whatever, fine. Be patient. Be gentle. Disciple them through it. Try a second one. Always be willing to confess your own wrongdoing. Always be willing to confess your own wrongdoing. The only sin you should be confessing is your own. You know that, right? Because when you're confessing someone else's sin, that's slander. Right? That's focusing on the guilt. When you're confessing your own sin, you can do that. You can say, this is where I messed up and stuff, and praise God that Jesus has forgiven me and washed me with his blood. Right? Look at 1 John 1, 1.9. I've mentioned it already. If we, confess our, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10 is interesting. Right? You're in conflict with one another. If you confess, great. God is like, okay, we're good. You know, like, I'll make this right. But if you're in conflict with one another, verse 10, and then you say, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Right? When... When you're in conflict with another and you're like, it's not my fault. And it's, it's, it, look, we're fighting, yeah, but it's because it's, it's the other person was being stupid. And when you do that, you're saying, God's wrong. God says that, you know, both of us need to submit ourselves to, to the Lord and to resist the devil. But no, I don't. He does or she does. Right? When you say you haven't sinned, you, you're saying God's a liar. And God says that his word's not in you. Right? When you're called out, 
You're either going to confess your sin or you're going to pretend someone else made you do it. And you're called out. Even in the sermon, okay? Hey, let's, let's be real. Nobody has to answer this out loud, but how many of you feel like this sermon is talking to you? If you confess, there's forgiveness from God. There's healing that starts to work when we confess to one another. That's a promise that's given in James 5, verse 16, right? It says, uh, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed or restored, right? That's what we do when we're in conflict. We, we pray with one another. That's it. We, we're restored. Yet if you sit there just blaming someone else, turning the conversation to focus on what he did as the place to put the blame, right? God says his word's not in you. You're a devil speaking. You're a slanderer. You are the mouth of Satan. Always be willing to confess your own wrongdoing. And sure, maybe both of you have have done wrong, but your job is just to confess your own sin, yours and yours alone. Pray for the other person. That's the best you can do for him or her, right? Regardless of what he or she does, you're responsible for you. You repent of your sins. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. Follow after Christ. Third, seek reconciliation as soon as possible. Right? Seek reconciliation as soon as possible. The longer you let unloving and hateful thoughts sit in your mind, the longer you serve the devil instead of the Lord. You're always serving someone. And if it's not God, it is Satan. The longer you, you let these, these unreconciled relationships linger, the longer you have these hateful or, or unloving thoughts in your mind, the longer you serve the devil instead of the Lord. Ephesians 4.26 talks about this. It says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the diabolos, to the slanderer. Right? When you're angry with someone, don't, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Meaning like, don't, don't just be like, ah, oh, forget it. I, I, I don't want to deal with this. Right? It's not really giving you a time limit. Like if, you, if you're angry with someone at 11.55 p.m., you know, then it's, it's not like, well, great, I have until sunset tomorrow. It's not that. And it's, if, you, if, you, if you're angry at someone at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, you're like, oh, shoot, I only have an hour to reconcile. It's not talking about when the sun goes down. It's saying, don't put this off prioritize this, right? Don't, don't feel like this is something you could deal with later. Do you deal with it now. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the slanderer because when you, when you let your anger fester or sit there untreated, it spreads and it takes root and it, it infects. It gives opportunity to the devil. Look at Matthew 5.23. It says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, meaning if you're worshiping, if you're worship, you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, right? You have this unreconciled relationship. Verse 24, well, leave your gift there before the altar and then go first be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift, right? Your worship means nothing if you are not willing to rec- reconcile with your fellow believer. Reconciling quickly means the issue gets dealt with. What, what benefit is there? from hating each other longer. You can, uh, you can fool everyone. You can come and still do your service at the church and stuff and offer your gift and all that kind of... You, you can do it. No one will know that you're fighting with someone at home. No one will know. You can fool us all, but you can't fool God. Because he, he's not measuring how much everyone likes what you do here. He's measuring your heart whether or not you're trusting and following him. So seek reconciliation as soon as possible. Finally, forgive. That's obvious, but 
You have to say it. Forgive for the sake of others and for Christ. Forgive for the sake of others and for Christ. If you think about it, forgiveness undoes the power of a slanderer. Right? He can, he can, he can say, hey, that person's guilty of this sin. You know, look what he did. And then you could be like, that's true. I forgive him. Issue resolved. Right? You have undone the power of a slanderer by the power of forgiveness. That's what Jesus did. He can accuse someone, he can slander someone, and he could be absolutely right about them, correct about them in every way. So what? If you forgive them, it now has no power over you. The Apostle Paul knew this. He knew that one of Satan's designs, one of his plans, was to sow conflict among us in order to divide us, to break our unity and peace. So he says, we forgive one another for, for each other's sake and for, for the sake of Christ, and that way we stand against the devil. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10. It says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Right? We know he wants broken relationships among us, so let's all forgive each other. Whoever you forgive, I'm forgiving too. Right? And if I've forgiven someone, I'm doing it for your sake, I'm doing it for, for Jesus in, in front of him. I, it's all done. There's no hidden motive, no, no grudge being held, nothing like that. That's how Jesus fixed your relationship with him. He took the first step, he paid the full cost, and he freely offered you forgiveness. That's how we're supposed to do it. Take the first step, pay the full price, offer full forgiveness freely. He did it for your sake. He, he did it so that you would overcome your sin by being given the time and the love and the guidance to live holy to be transformed, right? Go and do likewise. Satan is a devil. He is a diabolos. He is a slanderer. He slanders someone in your mind and he slanders you in someone else's mind. You can give in to those schemes and let the conflict divide the church. You can serve the devil this way and a lot of people do. But what happens when a church doesn't focus on guilt but focuses on overcoming? What happens when a church is filled with people who mess up but are always willing to confess their own wrongdoing? What happens when a church is filled with people who always seek reconciliation as soon as possible? What happens when a church is full of people who forgive for the sake of others and for Christ? That church might still experience conflict, but its people won't divide. A church that's grounded in overcoming by confession and reconciliation and forgiveness is one that's properly bathed in love and humility and unity and peace and like-mindedness based on God's word. That's a church that doesn't serve the devil who then rules over them. That's a church that resists the devil who then flees from them. Stand together as a church in oneness. By this, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples by our love for one another. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, a lot's been said. We, we thank you that, that we have a moment to speak 
thoroughly on this subject. There's more to say, but God, thank you for, for the truth. Sanctify us in it. Let us stand together on your word so that it guards our, our humility and our love and peace, our unity. Protect this church, Lord. An enemy prowls among us to try to use our own passions and desires for pleasure against us, to try to weaponize us against each other, turn us against each other. Lord, your people ought to be earth's mightiest heroes. We should be out saving the lost. And how quickly we resort to conflict and, and then divide because of the whispers of an enemy that make us focus on guilt and blame, wrongdoing and unworthiness and shortcomings. Put our minds on Jesus. Remind us that you took the first step and paid the full cost to freely offer forgiveness. You didn't wait. You moved when it was time to move. And you don't, you don't harbor bitterness against people. You always invite them immediately to restoration. God, in our hearts, every neighborhood of our relationships is under attack whether it be family or people at work or school or in our, in our marriage, in our, in our dating relationships, in every aspect, Lord, we're under attack because we are, we're flawed, we're, we're prone to hate and blame and fight with each other. God, help us to submit to you. Help us to resist the devil and have him flee from us. Teach us again, Lord, and, and call us back again to remind us over and over and over again that the gospel is a message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. Put in us, Lord, the spirit that wants to make peace based on God's word, wants to love by God's authority in his word. And if there be an unclean spirit among us that incites us to conflict and division, reveal it that we might call it out and protect ourselves from it and hide under the banner of the name of Jesus. If there be some move from the enemy to try to take us and recruit us against one another, reveal it so that we can take refuge in you alone. Your people are washed by the blood of Christ. Their punishment is paid. Far be it from us to deal more. Instead, Lord, instead of focusing on, on the wrongdoing that we see or that we receive, help us to focus on discipling one another, encouraging other with gentleness and respect, even without a word at times, to point each other to the Lord, to have harmony and love and peace. Protect this church and bless it. We know it can happen by the blood of the Lamb, by the sacrifice of Christ. Keep us there, Lord. Thank you for watching over our church and teaching us. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.